Uh, welcome to the Friendly Atheist po- Podcast. This is Jessica. I am recording um, from L.A. with special guest Jesse Thorne. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, Jesse, it, would you like to describe who you are to listeners who may not know? Oh, man. I have s- <laughs> The problem with the describing who I am is I have so many jobs mm-hmm. that... Uh, None of which mean anything to anyone. <laughs> um, I'm a, I, I own the podcasting company Maximum Fun, mm-hmm. uh, which distributes, uh, makes and distributes several dozen podcasts at this point, including My Brother, My Brother and Me and Judge Sean Hodgman. Mm-hmm. And I also host a show for uh, that's distributed by NPR called Bullseye mm-hmm. uh, that I've been doing since I was 19 <laughs> uh, every week for coming up on 20 years. Wow. Um, and uh, besides that, I own a menswear blog called Put This On and a little shop associated with the men's, menswear blog. Excellent. Also, dog enthusiast and bearded fellow, I would say. All true. I'm six foot three, 210. Uh-huh. Go about 210. Yeah. Somewhere in there. A little huskier <laughs> than I used to be. <laughs> so I'm actually a big fan of Maximum Fun. My, like, you know how children, everything that's like in the future is tomorrow? Mm-hmm. My husband thinks everything that's a podcast is Max Fun. <laughs> Good for your husband. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a real fan of mine. Um, so I kind of wanted to start a little bit by talking about the Max Fun sort of philosophy. I feel like Max Fun is kind of known for having really inclusive and generally positive and uplifting shows. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, um, you know, I uh, there were basically, when, when I started doing this, uh, there were sort of two lanes of entertainment. One was um, snarky or snide uh, or ironically... Um, composed Mm -hmm. and one was lame (laughs) and (laughs) uh, I like a lot of there's there's plenty of um, snark and snidery that I really love Uh Um, but I I had an experience early on in doing uh, The Sound of Young America which was the show that preceded Bullseye it was was, when I was still in college uh, in Santa Cruz which is where the show started and we had Dustin Diamond on the show, who <laughs> listeners may know as Screech from Saved by the Bell. Mm-hmm. Or they may know him from his chess, in- chess instructional videos, I was going to say. But yes, also sure. porn. No, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Uh, what or did you from hear? getting cut by him with a knife in a bar. Um, he went to jail for that one, I think. Really? Um, anyway, this was before <laughs> the porn and the, uh, before all the crazy stuff. It was just the chess instructional videos and being uh, Screech on Saved by the Bell. And you and want also to learn more about chess? Being in a math rock band. I believe he was also in a math rock band. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we booked him on the show because he was coming to Santa Cruz, uh, which was you know unusual for a comedy performer to be on their way actually to town. We booked a lot of guests who were coming to the San Francisco Bay Area sort of pretending that people would drive from Santa Cruz to San Francisco <laughs> to go see something. And, uh, and you know, we had we are the right age to have watched Say by the Bell as kids, and mm-hmm. we just thought it would be interesting to talk to somebody who was on a show like that, you know? Uh, turns out he's a monster. <laughs> um, he's just a terrible person uh, who just told a bunch of street jokes about disabled people. Cool. And then I remember the thing I remember most vividly is him telling a very distasteful joke that was not really funny. And us going like, well, maybe we can talk a little bit about your act. And he goes like, that is my act. <laughs> and we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and we were on live at the time. So we had a half hour block with this guy. And there was nothing. We did not have the skills to fill the rest of the time. So we couldn't <laughs> dump him, in other words. Like, we had to fill the hour uh-huh. to get to the to get to get the Pacifica News, <laughs> the KPFA News. Um, so... Uh, around then, I thought, like, well, if I've got this thing, even as marginal as a, you know, uh, a community radio show is, mm-hmm. I've got this thing. I should probably be using it for things that I like rather than things that I don't like or want to sort of make fun of. Mm-hmm. And I think Max Fun has grown out of that. You know, it is very important to us that we be making, you know, we don't we don't want to make you know, Hallmark Channel specials, that is not our interest. We want to make real comedy that comes out of our, you know, alternative comedy roots, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like we love 
the you know we love Mr. Show and mm-hmm. uh, you know all those things that what I remember you know for me in college it was Mr. Show, uh, Tenacious D, and the Larry Sanders Show. Uh-huh. Like those things were things that I didn't see till I was nineteen. I was like, this is the best thing ever. You know, whatever. But you know, it might be The Simpsons or whatever it is. We we want to make sharp stuff, mm-hmm. but I think that we had gotten to a kind of cultural point where making demonstrating that you were not mainstream by being snide or being snarky was just lame mm-hmm. it was just had it was not funny to me anyway and it wasn't of much interest to me and besides that um i think we have also especially over time uh worked hard to make stuff that um you know, in our being funny isn't going to be isn't going to be excluding and hurting people. And I don't mm-hmm. think that we're doing that in a perfect way mm-hmm. uh, by any means. Um, and, you know, that's just like a, that's not our the, the top thing that we're trying to do in the world. I think the top thing that we're trying to do in the world is make great shows. Uh-huh. But it, it is of consequence to us that we not like basically the reason is. I don't want to be an asshole and I don't want to work with assholes. I feel like that's a good life philosophy to have. You know, so like I know comedy people who are very funny who are assholes and uh-huh. I, I don't, you know, I don't have a lot of time for it. Yeah. Um, like it's just not how I want my life to be. Mm-hmm. So th- that is the reason that we, you know, that is like the top way in which we have tried to be values driven. And when we add shows to the network or create shows, we are always actively looking for how does this show um, add to people's lives and make the world better in some way. Yeah. And again, like not in like a, a, for every show we buy a cow for a farmer in the third world or, <laughs> you know, whatever like that. But just like we want to be additive to the good of the world rather than negative to the good of the world. Yeah, and I feel like, um, so my show is targeted towards atheists in general. Um, and a feed, feedback we get a lot, and I feel like it's probably similar to you, is that um, it's people from smaller towns or people who don't understand them, and they're kind of othered in some way. In my case, you know, in case of my listeners, they're the only atheist in a Baptist town or something like that. And I feel like Max Fun has had a really... A net positive impact on just people who are not cis straight white guys, and I think that's something to be, you know, to be proud of and um, and to celebrate. So, what do you say when I feel like we hear a lot from the old whites that PC police has ruined comedy? And I don't find that like I'm re-listening to old um, episodes of my brother, my brother and me, and the first hundred episodes were a little rough, and they've gotten better. And gotten more inclusive, gotten more mindful of their language. It's not less funny. So why do you think people think that? And what would you say to that? I think that being a comic and especially a stand-up comic is a really, really, really hard job. And you only have one feedback loop, and that is, is the audience laughing. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of comics, especially stand-up comics, have – see a kind of absolute value in does this thing generate laughter. Mm-hmm. And older people in general, you know, one of the things that happens as we get older is, you know, you get into patterns of behavior that are harder and harder to flex mm-hmm. when when you're older. So I think that – for a lot of comics, and I'm talking particularly about stand-ups, um, they have this experience, which is, well, if I do it and they laugh, that's good. Mm-hmm. I have succeeded at my goal. Um, and I think that the har- the harshest reactions to... Um, so-called PC culture or whatever in comedy specifically come from people who are feel betrayed comics who feel betrayed by that feedback loop. Right. Mm -hmm. They're like, I could before I could, you know, 
whatever, say something was retarded uh-huh. and I could get a laugh. And even, you know, even if the laugh was not at the expense of intellectually disabled people mm-hmm. spe- specifically, but th- that could be part of, you know, putting some juice in a punchline and it would work. And now if I, whatever, go do a college show, people walk out, mm-hmm. right? And so they, they I, I can see from their perspective how that feels because uh, it feels like a betrayal of the deal that they made when they became a comic, which was, I can say this thing, that gets a laugh, that's an absolute good. Uh-huh. But I also think that that skips the kind of the first part, which is, you know, at your job as a in, a in comedy and especially in stand-up is to make people laugh. And so you don't really get to not be responsible for the audience's reaction to your material. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are doing stuff that is alienating to the audience for whatever reason, um, you know, you're talking about sexual assault. And if you're in a club with 100 people in it, mm-hmm. there's, you know, probably 20 who have been sexually assaulted. So, like, yeah, they might not think that's funny, mm-hmm. you know, like um, and, and if you are if you are doing that and you are aware of that consequence that that you're alienating people in your audience, as far as I'm concerned, you better have a reason that you're doing it besides I think this is funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you or have I can't to, think of a better joke. Yeah, like I think there has to be, yeah, I, I think there has to be a like a, a, a moral basis for it. And there, typically in those situations, there really isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think that the comics who talk about this stuff, um, and I think it's a relatively small proportion of the stand-up community that get amplified mm-hmm. by the media because they're older or whatever, um, but I think the comics who who talk about this kind of stuff, like they just don't they don't want to be responsible for what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is like one of the top jobs of the comic. Mm-hmm. They and, and so what they do is they conflate the kind of morally responsible alienating speech that might find its way into a comedy routine, mm-hmm. like a stand-up act is not just about how many funny things can you put in it. I mean, it could be, mm-hmm. but um, uh, it's not always that, you know, like there's plenty of room for speaking truth to power and all mm-hmm. of those things. Um, they conflate that with the being a jerk to people. <laughs> and I think, I, I think that, um, because comics always see themselves as powerless outsiders, even if they're Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld, um, because that is what led them be, feeling like a powerless outsider is what led them into comedy. Uh-huh. It's not a it's not a career that you would choose, you know. <laughs> if you like, it's it's too much. It's too much focused hard work of a very particular kind that uh-huh. has to do with like controlling others and their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> um, then that's that some then someone who was you know the captain of the football team or whatever uh, in high school would have done. So like they also it is also very difficult for those people whether it's you know whoever I mean br- brilliant you know Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Have, you know, uh, occasionally sort of said something like this. And that's two of the greatest stand-up comics of all time and Mm -hmm. total brilliant geniuses. And I think by all evidence that I've seen, probably pretty decent guys as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, but they see, it it is hard to understand the way that the impact of what you're doing changes uh, over the course, course of your life. And it's hard for people who are in privileged positions to see their own privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only recently that I could say the word privilege and assume the audience knew what I was talking about even, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was an American studies major in college. My mom has a, you know, my mom taught that stuff when I was a kid in, in, in a college. So like that was just part of my childhood. Uh-huh. You know, my mom is a white person with a master's degree in Latin American studies. Like <laughs> you can't get through that without knowing all your, you know, all your Deleuze and all your you know, whatever. But, um, like, I, I think it's hard even just to see that. And so, long story short, I think a lot of us, like me and Jordan on Jordan, Jesse Go, or um, 
uh, or the McElroys for that matter, have the skill that we have tried to develop is listening to our audience and hearing the ways that what we are doing is affecting them and Mm -hmm. their lives. And it doesn't mean that we have to like take all the edges off or anything like that. We just think about the consequences. Yeah. Um, And we make mistakes and I think we're lucky to work in a medium where we have a reasonable presumption of goodwill from our audience and from our audience to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, That means that, you know, when we do something that, make someone feel uncomfortable our audience tends to feel comfortable saying telling us that Mm. in a way that is not uh that is typically not accusatory and not um defensive but generous Mm -hmm. you know like i i would like to help you you know help your audience right right um, so I know as a journalist, you do not have opinions about <laughs> about politics. Yeah. Um, Did you know Jim, you know, Jim Lehrer is for the, a longtime anchor of the new PBS NewsHour? Uh-huh. He, he doesn't vote. Shut up. Yeah. Voting is secret and he doesn't vote because he takes his responsibility as an impartial journalist that seriously. I mean, he's now retired from the NewsHour, so maybe he's gone back to voting, but. You vote, right? I do vote. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or. That's wild. I vote straight natural law. <laughs> no, um, Sorry if anyone from the National Law Party is listening. There's 14 please, people listening to this, so I wouldn't. Please don't email NPR. <laughs> and say that I said that. Um, but after after 2016, I feel like there were, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if a tonal shift is the right word, but something seemed to change with a lot a lot of comedy podcasts and a lot of and just in max fun in general did you notice that or was that just a shift that naturally occurred that progress that we felt like had been making we'd ma- we'd been making no longer felt real anymore i think that rhetorically speaking in comedy mm-hmm. people felt a lower overall ambient sense of safety mm and I think that, um, you know, circa 2015, if you're a, especially if you're, you know, uh, a straight cis white male like myself, mm-hmm. um, you know, there weren't a lot of, the ground felt very solid under your feet. And I think that a lot of people, uh, a, a lot of people who, felt who felt like the world was very solid like we all were on the same page mm-hmm. uh like you know why this is just a joke right which you know is like part of the social contract of making any joke is like you have to have this kind of security that um they're not taking you down mm-hmm. um and like that felt relatively safe mm-hmm. and i think i i think that the way the media has changed and the way that the general tone of the country has changed over the past, uh, you know, four years, so maybe, um, has led people to be less likely to feel that baseline security. Mm. Um, and that includes talent and audience and whatever. And so some people's reaction to that has been to uh, very, many people's reaction to that has been to very explicitly, like, pick a team. Uh Um, So you can say, like, uh, I'm, I, I, we have a circle of safety, like a mutual understanding, Mm -hmm. a a social trust within this specific context. And then anybody who's out that out of outside of that context, we just don't have to worry about because they are whatever infidels or, (laughs) you know what I mean? Uh Um, and, uh, some people have, I think their thinking has developed and their understanding has developed about what it is like to stand on shaky ground. Mm -hmm socially and uh you know in terms of the culture and kind of cultural capital and power um and hegemony if you will mm-hmm. and uh for that reason they are more aware of being careful of others i also think that another thing that has happened is that 
um, for all the ways that social media in the last five to 10 years has changed rhetoric in the country for the worse. And I think that they are many. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one positive effect is that people and especially performers are more aware of the breadth of people that they are addressing when they speak. Mm -hmm. And because, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen those like sociological studies about how few friends who are people of color, white people have and that kind of (laughs) stuff. Um, Like one of the things about being privileged is that uh, you're, you have to make an active choice to recognize and understand your privilege in a way that people who are, not socially privileged don't because, you know, like if you're a black person and you work for a company, you're probably in a room of 12 people. You're probably one of one or two, you Mm -hmm. know? So you're constantly having to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're one of the white people, it's never even occurred to you. It might be different for the black person often. Right. So I think that, uh, one of the positive things about social media is that because power is in some ways relatively flat, Mm Um, and because social conventions are different, um, you know, people feel comfortable calling out, whether that calling out is the, you know, maybe, uh, ruder and potentially less productive kind or the kind that we're very grateful to often get at at Max Fun, which is, a uh, a more a more helpful to us mm-hmm. kind like a, hey this is how I felt about that right just so you know mm-hmm. and you can choose what to do with that in the future yeah. um so uh actually the the podcast that helped me find Max Fun is Ono Ross and Carey I'm I think it's a really interesting like contribution to the sort of slate of of shows you have what what brought so uh, Ono Ross and Carey um is Ross Blotcher Carey Poppy and their slogan is, we show up so you don't have to. So whether that's joining Scientology or whether that's trying a new detox thing that probably makes them poop too much, that's what they do. What brought, what was appealing for that to bring into your audience? Well, we knew Carrie particularly uh, through our community in general. In the, in the early days of Ono, Ross, and Carrie, Carrie was a very active member of the MaxFun community and mm-hmm. was... Um, friends with some folks who worked here through the MaxFun community and and that kind of thing. She played on the uh, MaxFun softball team. I think that might have been before. Oh, no, Ross There's and a MaxFun softball team? There was. We went 0-10 and it was very difficult. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, not a lot of jocks working at MaxFun, <laughs> as it turns out. Couldn't beat the animal hospital. <laughs> um, I- but anyway... Uh, <laughs> I used to work at a um, marketing firm, and it was a bunch of nerd writers. Mm-hmm. And we had a, soft, a softball team or a kickball. We had both a co- softball game team and a kickball team. We were known as the team with the most dudes who wore skinny jeans to the game. Yeah. So I feel you. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I could do an hour on the Max Fun softball team, uh, uh, but I'm not going to. What position did you play? Uh, well, unfortunately, oh. we had a shortage of pitchers who could throw it underhand <laughs> and make it to home plate and drew through the strike zone. Wow. Um, That's pretty essential to most softball So teams. we had one ringer. We had a woman who we didn't know before the team started who had played college softball. So she played <laughs> shortstop. And I usually I usually played third base, but I was the backup pitcher. If Brian Fernandez, the, um, the uh, producer of Jordan, Jesse Go, was not there that week, uh-huh. I was the other guy who could get it through the strike zone. <laughs> I don't um, want to brag, but I do pitch for a 14-inch softball team in the Chicago suburbs. We also went over 10 this past season, so... Um, yeah, but I mean, that's an appropriate punishment for pe- playing a weird regional variation of softball. <laughs> Um, oh, that's right. 16 inches regional. Yeah. What did you guys play out here? Regular softball. With a mitt? With a soft, yeah. That feels like a lot to ask for The somebody. other thing is a weird made-up thing that only happens in the frozen north. <laughs> okay, first of all, we it's have like, a lot of time to kill like, in the like winter. Weird, there's, don't you have a weird kind of bowling also? I feel like there's no, like that's, another that's weird Boston. kind of bowling. They have candle pin, pin and bowling. then there's something where people play hockey with brooms. 
That That's seems another like thing. something my it's gym not, teacher yeah, made up. Anyway, this is, we're off topic. So with <laughs> Ross and Carrie, I knew that Carrie was doing this show, and I knew Carrie had been, Carrie worked at um, the Center for Inquiry, which is like a skeptics uh-huh. organization here in Los Angeles. I knew she was very involved in that community. But frankly, even as, and I, I can say this, despite my, even as an atheist myself, I was pretty, pardon, pardon the pun, skeptical <laughs> about bringing a skeptic program into Max Fund because uh, I have not in my time on earth found that the skeptic community as a whole publicly uh, displays the values that I would like Max Fund to reflect. I would say that's true, and yeah. you can see my Twitter for proof. Yes. Yeah. So um, basically, like, I think it's a bunch of the worst things about nerds, which is like saying, well, actually, and <laughs> not considering other people's social conventions and uh-huh. what values they might provide to them mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. These are all true. And being contemptuous of people's most deeply held beliefs. <laughs> Um, and like, I'm an atheist, but like I went to church as a kid. I worked at a church for a while that I had a very nice time working at the church. Um, was very glad to work there. I think I'm not opposed to religion in the slightest on the whole. I just, I just don't buy it. (laughs) Um, but hold on. This is my. Sorry. Can you mark that, Danny? Um, so I, I listened to Ross and Carrie's show and the thing that I liked about Ross and Carrie's show is that they, um, you know, they come from a religious background Mm -hmm. of which they are not contemptuous. Mm -hmm. You know, they made their own choices about how they wanted to live their life, but they're not a jerk about it. Mm -hmm. And... They are so sincere and open-hearted in their work um, that it always really that, that it really impressed me. Mm-hmm. Now, I also thought they were fun and funny, and they were doing a really they were doing crazy shit, which I thought was great. <laughs> um, even then, they were already doing crazy stuff. But like the thing that I liked about it was, I was like, oh, this is. Um, you know, good, goodness knows there are plenty of um, people f- who are not only, you know, whatever, secular humanists or something mm-hmm. in the Max Fun audience, but people for whom being a secular humanist or an atheist is part of their, like, actual identity, mm-hmm. not a kind of incidental thing in their right. life. And um, and I knew that those people probably wanted some kind of media that was that had that kind of – that had – that was about that stuff that they were interested in Mm -hmm. because, you know, I think often I find often because religion was a really huge part of their life at some point Mm -hmm. that then, you know, they, they had to make big moves to change that or, you know, they're the only atheist in town or whatever. Um, and so I, that, that's what I loved about Ross and Carrie is that they gave the same like sincere consideration to every subject they covered Mm -hmm. and every person that they brought on their show and they weren't afraid to say that it was silly but they even if they even if something was truly silly they were able to talk about that in a way that was respectful to people who believed in it Mm -hmm. because you know i mean there is a fundamental conflict between the you know the activist uh, atheist community, the jerky ones, uh-huh. and the faith community, which is, you know, the fundamental premise of faith is that faith makes your life better and it's not based on anything and that's why it makes your life better. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think that um, uh, that is something that you, there's there's no path forward if you're not respectful of that for other people. So, mm-hmm. um that was what I loved about Ross and Carrie is that they 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 always bring sincere regard and respect. Yeah, they both. I I'm friends with Ross, but they're both so nice, like aggressively nice, like bordering on insincere. But I think it's sincere. No, like, it's totally sincere as far as I can tell. <laughs> Ross works at Disney. You yeah, know? <laughs> like he invited me in his office tomorrow. I'm very excited. It's fun. You should go. Yeah, I'm super st- stoked. Okay, so I uh, I listen to uh, Jordan Jesse go. Um, and I feel like I remember hearing something, but it's really hard to go through the back catalog to mm-hmm. 
find anything. Yeah, I mean, uh, if the show had topics, that would help. Yeah. <laughs> oh, can you give a little uh, yeah. elevator pitch on Jordan uh, Jesse Jordan Go. Jesse Go is what we thought a podcast was going to be 12 years ago. <laughs> it's two guys talking about nothing. Mm-hmm. We think we have a very, we're very refined at it, but there's really no reason to listen. <laughs> there's no convincing. Re- there's nothing I could tell you about Jordan Jesse Go that would lead you to even try listening to Jordan Jesse Go. It's, it's really funny. People who listen to it like it. I listened to it this morning because I really yeah. need to know what the 2019 flavor of the year was. Yeah. Anyway, um, did you say that you almost joined a cult or were invited to a cult when you lived in San Francisco? Or is that a thing I'm hallucinating? (laughs) I once got invited. I once went to a meeting of a semi-cult. Cult Cult is strong. Okay. You would call it a... It's not exactly religious. That's... And there's no, like, live-in elements as far as I know. Is there a head I went to something that I think Ross and Carrie covered on their show called Landmark Forum. So there was a... There was a really... I'm just going to be frank. There was a very cute girl at my high school (laughs) who had transferred to uh, who had transferred to our school from a school in Virginia. And uh, I went to an arts high school and she was like a very serious student. Uh And she was very disappointed at the level of scholarliness (laughs) at our high school. She ended up having to take math classes at other high schools because she ran out of math classes to take at Uh our high school. I think she eventually got a doctorate from MIT. Okay. Uh, And she went to an arts high school because... Because she was also a talented musician. Ah, okay. Um, She also wrestled on another team's... on another school's wrestling team. She went to Lincoln High School, I believe, in San Francisco to wrestle on their wrestling team. This woman is my hero. This woman was very clear-eyed and her father was a... uh, her father was a career Navy guy or something like that. She uh-huh. was she was like goal-oriented <laughs> to the extreme. Anyway, uh, she was a cool lady and she was very cute. And uh, she invited me to her like graduation from the Landmark Forum, which is a sort of like combination of a cult, a self-improvement thing, uh-huh. and like an organizational system, like a life org- <laughs> Like it's like somewhere between life coaching and a cult. Uh-huh. Um, and it was weird. It was a weird experience. It was, um, it had been very beneficial to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, was nothing like, you know, I, as far as I know, I haven't read a ton about it. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's a landmark forum nerd in the audience who's <laughs> like shaking their fist at me right now. But, like, as far as I know, there's nothing, like, super evil about it or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just pretty intense, and it's, like, basically self-help multi-level marketing. Oh. And the thing the thing that I remember about this meeting was there were a lot of these kind of testimonials and call and responses in this graduation ceremony mm-hmm. that the only um, the only reference that I had for that Especially as a guy who, I mean, like, I went to church as a kid, but I went to a San Francisco Episcopalian church. Uh-huh. So the service is pretty English and the values are hyper-liberal. Uh-huh. Um, you know, like, the, the service is, is pretty emotionally reserved. <laughs> um, you know, we didn't, we, there was not a lot of testifying in my church, in other words. Sure. So the, the main experience that I had had that, that, re, that it reminded me of was going to AA meetings with my dad when I was a kid. So my dad was in recovery for, I mean, is still in recovery. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he was going to meetings very, very regularly when I was little. And um, I, he had partial custody of me and not, not, no money for babysitters. So like I would just go and color in the corner, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of format of, you know, someone says hello and everyone says hello back to them and you repeat everybody's name and mm-hmm. all these things that make it feel like a secure, safe, powerful space okay. that are part of what makes AA work, I think, uh-huh. that maybe in Landmark Forum, these things were being used to get you to sign up for the next Landmark Forum <laughs> class. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that was the closest I've ever come to joining a cult. And I I, I remember saying that to this a girl and her mom who had driven us there in their minivan on the way home. Then they asked what I thought of it. I was like, you know, I don't know. I was not that into it. It sort of reminded me of. <laughs> and uh, they were like, okay, cool. Okay. They How were, they were nice about it. I was probably 15 or 16. <laughs> yeah. 
old enough to know a cult when he saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, like, I don't think it's a particularly insidious cult. If, if it's helped you, then it's helped you, but... On the scale of good to bad cults, it's it's okay. Also, you, you this is the portion of the program where I ask you to relay charming anecdotes to my audience. Mm. So, um, you mentioned Maya Angelou and a psychic on the show <laughs> I just listened to today, and I really liked it, and I was wondering I if used you could to work talk about on, it more. I used to work on a radio show called West Coast Live, and my boss was a woman named uh, Kathy Kamen Goldmark, uh, and she's she's passed away now, but she was a... She was a totally amazing woman. She was a novelist and had worked in every part of the book industry um, and produced this radio show, which was substantially about books and um, just an amazing, vivacious, like brilliant woman and a real jack of all trades. And one of her, like if she had one thing that was her call, her claim to fame, it was that she founded a band. She had also been a professional musician. Mm -hmm. Um, She founded a band called the Rock Bottom Remainders, which was composed of her. uh, There was a sort of semi-rotating lineup, but it was like her, Dave Barry, Amy Tan. They were like the core, they were like the core members. And Matt Groening <laughs> um, and Stephen King. Sure. Stephen King's a musician? And, yeah. And, that well, I mean, you know, some of these people were just sang backup or played harmonica or whatever. <laughs> and I think Amy Tan was famous for coming on in S&M gear, doing these boots are made for walking and then leaving. <laughs> Amy Tan is a – I met Amy Tan a couple times. She's a super cool lady. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, she was in this band and one of the members of this band was Maya Angelou, who's a, actually a very accomplished singer, uh, was a very accomplished singer. And so she was actually very good friends with, she was very close with Maya Angelou. They were like super, they were like real buddies. And one day Maya Angelou's son, who's a very, uh, talented poet was on the show and he was a kind of a regular on the show. And, um, Kathy was like, did I ever tell you this story about your mom? And and he's like, what's that? And she's like, Jesse, you should hear this. It's like one time Maya called me up and she had had like $700 in billings from the Miss Cleo psychic hotline. <laughs> and I, Kathy was like, I told her, Maya, you are a very smart woman. Like, you have to know that this is a hustle. Like, these are not real psychics. And Maya Angelou said, but they are real psychics, you know, in a Maya Angelou voice. And Kathy was like, come on, how do you know that they're real psychics? Like, this can't possibly be true. And she's like, well, will I talk to one? And she knew my name. And I never mentioned it. That's one name out of 300 million in the United States, you know? And Kathy said, yeah, so you had been talking to her on the line for a while? And my Angela was like, yes. And Kathy just said, Kathy, Kathy just said, Maya, you know how you just gave the convocation at the, at the, uh, you know, the inauguration of President Clinton? And uh, 200 million people watch that. <laughs> and she's like, yes. And she goes like, Maya, I don't mean to put too fine a point on it, but do you think it's possible you have a distinctive voice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you very yeah. much. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about kind of social media. And would you mind um, talking a little bit about your daughter? Not specifically. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so you have a daughter. How old is she? She's seven. Seven. Um, and she uh, is trans and we had this. Co- uh, we- yeah, she's so she um, I, she's I have three. I have three kids, mm-hmm. a t- um, almost two year old, five year old and a seven year old. And a couple years ago when she was pretty fresh in kindergarten, mm-hmm. um, uh, the oldest told us that she was a girl. We had pres- we, we had presumed her to be a boy. And um, she told us her name, which initially, <laughs> initially she said Grease. Oh. <laughs> um, which we figured out she meant Grace, which uh-huh. we were very grateful for because we didn't want to sure. tell her she couldn't have the name she wanted, but we also didn't want to have a child <laughs> named Grease. <laughs> Do you um, think it would have been like the country or like the food substance? I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you. <laughs> I always thought of the musical. <laughs> um, 
but uh, yeah, so she she sort of told us that she was a girl, and and when she told us that, it also kind of made clear a lot of other things that had been going on with her previously that we sh- maybe could or should have understood to be her trying to express that to us. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, basically, you know, the the very very short version of it is one day, you know, in the bathtub or whatever, my wife pointed out to Grace that not all girls have vaginas. Some girls have penises. And um, and not all boys have penises. Some uh, boys have vaginas or other stuff. And, um, and not in any more specific terms than that, but w- when she said that, Grace was very clear. Oh, yes, that's what I am. And it was like, huh. oh, all these things be- from before, you know, like she was totally obsessed with this scene in the Jungle Book where Baloo dances in a grass skirt. And we always just, I don't know, I mean, like, it it did not even occur to, like, we thought, uh, like, the prospect of her being a a femi boy had occurred to us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she also, her interests were not particularly culturally coded as femi, Mm -hmm. building stuff and stuff. So, um, you know, we, she said it to us and, uh, yeah, so she's been, she's been living as a girl since then, which is uh, the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I think is interesting is I see you on Twitter and social media a lot and you are willing to engage with sort of transphobic people (laughs) fairly frequently. Sometimes. Well, (laughs) most recent, in a most recent, uh, for a two week period recently, I decided to, yeah. And can you kind of speak a little to that? Because I get into those phases too sometimes where I'm like, I'm going to argue with strangers on the WGN Facebook group because it feels (laughs) cathartic to me right now. Is is it catharsis or is it an urge to educate or is it just. Wait, are you arguing about the Cubs game? Like WGN, the television network? Yeah, well, I mean, it's WGN Chicago News. So, like, somebody will be mad that the river was dyed green. And I'm just going to. I thought you were mad about their new efforts at creating uh, prestige programming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so, uh, yeah, so basically when I, I we didn't really, my wife is also host a podcast called One Bad Mother, and there wasn't really a way for us to move forward in our lives without being at least somewhat public about Grace uh, being a girl. Uh Because it would just be, like we just have neither of our shows are exactly about our kids, but um, and especially not mine. Uh-huh. Teresa's is kind of about parenting in general, but um, we just couldn't s- stop telling anecdotes about our son Simon and start telling anecdotes right. about our daughter Grace. So we just so I did an episode of the show where I explained it, and and um, uh, and we had a friend of the show on a regular guest who is a trans woman. Um, uh, to talk a little bit about her experience because on, on Jordan Jesse Go, she had had this, uh, she sometimes works here at Max Fun as a writer. And um, uh, she many years ago had called into Jordan Jesse Go the first time she went out in women's clothes when she didn't even think of herself as trans. Mm-hmm. And then she became a comic after that, uh, moved to Los Angeles to be a comic. She lived in, I think, Akron. Um, and, uh, she moved to Los Angeles to be a comic. We ended up having her on Jordan Jesse go just as a comic, as a local comic that we knew. Mm -hmm. And she was like, did you know that I was that person who called in that one time? We were like, no, we did not. Oh my God. So she had had this, she had had this kind of funny version of a, a, of a coming out story on Jordan Jesse go. So we had her there and, um, and it was great. And I received, I literally got one email from someone who was weird about it. Uh huh. And that person was more weird about it than they were jerky about it. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I just wrote them back and said, you know, you're wrong. Go suck a lemon. <laughs> and, you know, Go because rocks. Well, like the crazy, the two crazy things about these people who correct you when you're the parent of a trans child are like, one, the people who think you are like uh, making your child do uh-huh. this. You're like, have you ever tried making <laughs> your child do anything? Like I can hardly get my child to watch Sesame Street instead of Inspector Gadget. And like, they don't know, my children don't know the password to the computer that they watch it on. Like it's very hard to get kids to do things. And the other thing is that you have, the, this comes from some kind of like ideological, uh-huh. like, no, 
No one wants this. Like, I love my child to the end of the world and back, and mm-hmm. I'm so happy that she came out because it will make her life better and safer. Uh, but, like, uh, if I had the choice between a child whose life is difficult and uh, complicated and requires facing prejudice and danger every day of her entire life for the rest of her life and not, mm-hmm. I would have chosen not. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> like, I'm doing this because people are people will send you, you know, um, like uh, suicide rates for transgender people, and I'm like, yeah, you it's think I you. did? Yeah, like, but also, like, you think I didn't think about that when when I found figured out she was transgender? Like, <laughs> what I the parents who have parents who are in this position, like, we've got a lot of skin in the game here. We've done <laughs> we've done a lot of reading. <laughs> um, this wasn't a light this, thing to happen. No, God, no. So anyway, um, a f- f- months later, uh-huh. a. A comedian named Owen Benjamin was complaining, a former comedian slash comedian named Owen Benjamin uh, was complaining about, um, was complaining about PC culture and comedy. And, and he was doing it in response to a tweet that my uh, co-host and friend John Hodgman had written about an experience that John had with an older comedian who had tried to kind of sell him that line about, you know, this is free speech and Mm -hmm. PC culture is killing comedy. And John's position on it basically was like, you know, like old people are old people and I don't believe this person is malicious. Um, And this is one of the great, this was one of the great, they didn't, he didn't use his name. This is one of the great comedy people that I love. And, um, you know, it's, it's okay for old people to be old people, uh, when they're not when they're not being hateful about it, but he's wrong, and it's okay for us to be young people who get it. Mm-hmm. And Owen, uh, I'm on a first name basis with this man <laughs> I've never met. Um, Owen like retweeted him and said some shitty thing about it. And then somebody in the re- reply said, "Well, what do you expect? His boss is giving his his boss is giving his kid hormone replacement therapy or some shit like that." And then I was like. Uh, somebody called. Uh, maybe they tagged me. Some shit. I don't remember. And anyway, I I went through this period of dealing with this comedian who I think is actually maybe somewhat unhinged, and his fan base, uh, many of whom are definitely unhinged, <laughs> um, that lasted a few weeks and then it kind of faded. And there was like some shitty things that happened from it, like um. This guy was being a real asshole, and he was he was repeatedly making jokes about. Uh, it's a guy named David Hogg, the teenage the teenage mass shooting survivor, survivor yeah. Who, yeah, making jokes about his pubes, and he's oh, done God. all these horrible. They got him kicked off of Twitter. Um, he'd done all these lousy things. He's a real not a not a this guy's. I don't know. You know, I don't know if he's a fundamentally bad person or if he. <laughs> I I know many people who knew him years ago. Uh-huh. And thought he was a very nice man and are baffled by his turn. Uh-huh. So that's what leads me to think that there's something unhinged. But anyway, uh, a couple of weeks ago, it kind of, uh, maybe a couple months ago now, it's it kind of recurred. And I had kind of engaged people. I mean, it's like, it's very hard not to, you want to defend your kid. Like, you right. feel like these people are attacking my kid. And you, and you want to defend them. And, and I also think that, like, given our circumstances that, um, being what they call stealth, which is like a person who lives as uh, a gender other than the one they were uh, assigned at birth, but does not is not public about the fact that uh, that's uh. their situation, was never a, really an option mm-hmm. for our daughter. We do feel a little bit of obligation to like kind of be out there. Like we're not really activists, but we just want to we want people to know that we are that we have a transgender kid, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's part of being human. And uh, this, in the hopes that if this ever came up in their life, it would feel familiar to them, mm-hmm. basically. Because we know that when we went through this situation, I think knowing some transgender people in our lives, including a close friend of Teresa's who had transitioned maybe, a, who had started his transition maybe a year or two before this all went down, like... It was there in our minds so that we could recognize it when Grace mm-hmm. brought it up. You know, like we knew enough to casually throw in that not all right, not all girls, not all boys have uh, penises mm-hmm. or whatever. And so, more recently, it it 
it, the cycle spun up again, and he made a new video about me, and he's a, really yeah yeah, and um, and so all these nut bars were tweeting horrible things at me, and on a vast spectrum of horrible. I mean, the thing about the about gender is, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know much about it, uh-huh. um, and most of these people who are tweeting lousy things at me were not doing it to be hurtful. They were doing it because they don't know about gender and how it works in a situation like ours, mm-hmm. and they maybe are sincerely worried that it's child abuse mm-hmm. or. And so for a time, for a couple of weeks, maybe 10 days, I was like, you know, when somebody tweets some shitty thing at me, mm-hmm. I'm going to retweet it, uh, you know, quote tweet it, and say the way it actually works. Uh-huh. Because even as somebody who knew transgender people in his day-to-day life and I don't know. My neighbor, when I was a kid, was transgender. I grew up in the mission in San Francisco. Like, I grew up five blocks, eight blocks from Castro Street. You know, yeah. like this is part of always been part of. I went to UC Santa Cruz. Like, it's all. <laughs> I, it's always been peripheral to my life, even in the eighties. But like, um, even for us, there were plenty of things that we didn't really know about mm-hmm. how it worked that made us worried and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, not opposed to it, but like worried and uncomfortable because we didn't know. And I thought, like, I don't know if I'm going to convince any people that are tweeting at me. Mm -hmm. Like, it wasn't my goal to win against them. It was more like when they tweet me, like, how are you, why is your child on, you know, hormones? Mm -hmm. And, And they would say he is five years old or whatever. I'd be like, well, she's seven and she's not on hormones. Mm hmm that's it uh she if if she goes on hormones it won't be for another 5 years or so mm-hmm. um and, or actually another 10 years or so um and if she, you know maybe in 5 years or so she'll go on hormone blockers which forestall puberty uh-huh. right and that's because you want the kid to be as old as possible when they make any decisions that have permanent consequences mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. right and my goal in doing that was, A, to have an action I could take. Because one of the really hard things about it is that you only have so much energy, but it's like, you know, you're a horse fighting against a thousand ducks or whatever the thing is, right? Like, um, you, you, I don't remember what that thing no, that they ask it. you on Reddit is. But, like, there's, you know, there's, there's even if there's 20 of these people, you like, no, no amount of batting away will lead to you winning. Mm-hmm. But... Not doing anything really eats you up. Yeah. Like blocking feels good uh-huh. and helps and muting feels good. And I was actually muting everybody that I was retweeting. <laughs> um, but like I just didn't want to um, – I, I just didn't want to not do anything because it would have made me feel really bad. Because what you really want to do – I mean in any situation where you're feeling bad – one of the things that you want to do is take an action, uh-huh. right? It's like going for a walk. Right. You know what I mean? Like you, something. You, the the emotional energy becomes physical energy that needs an outlet. Mm. You need to like you need to do a thing. Uh-huh. And so this was a thing where I thought like this is not probably not going to convince very many people that are whatever who came to Owen Benjamin because <laughs> they want this. Uh-huh. But I was like, I've got. 50,000 people who follow me on Twitter, you know, and based on my experience, probably almost all of those people generally have a positive uh, opinion about gender nonconforming people. They're not like hateful bigots, Mm -hmm. but probably most of them are sincerely curious about what it means and what the resources are. And, and I had had a, I had had a pediatrician talk to me at Max FunCon, which is an annual kind of conference we give. Uh, named Dave and Dave, uh, Dr. Dave was like, you know, when you talked about that on Jordan, Jesse go, I've been a pediatrician for 25 years, but I thought I should incorporate this and I should incorporate gender into my practice because I work with a lot of kids and teenagers. And so once the kids are old enough that I have time with them without their parents present, 
I check in with them about their gender identity and and their health. Wow. Um, and I thought, like, well, if there's 50,000 people on this Twitter feed, there's probably 50 who are going to come in, like, pretty direct contact with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, a kid of theirs or a, a niece or nephew of theirs or their uncle or their brother or sister or whatever. Uh-huh. And I was like, I can't like teach these people everything they need to know. But what I can do is because it's a lot of stuff and it's hard and scary. But what I can do is just get enough information into their heads that they can see the broad outlines so that if they have to fill it in later, they can, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause that was, as I said, that, that was the thing for me. Like it was like understanding, it was like, I had a generally positive feeling about gender nonconforming people. I have no, I had like no opposition to it. I was all for it. Uh-huh. Let's go change the IDs, all that kind of thing or whatever. But like for me, this, it was, when it was in my family, it was just, it was just barely within my grasp to recognize it when I saw it. Uh huh. And so I wanted to get people there. Like yeah. I want, I feel like I can probably get some people there so that when a kid in their Boy Scout troop or their sister uh-huh. or whatever is going through something, they've got enough skills to say like, this looks like something I can be helpful or learn more. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm curious. So both your podcast and and your wife's uh, One Bad Mother, you talk a lot. I mean, hers is a little more directly related, but you talk a lot about your personal life on Jordan Jesse Go. And you've been doing Jordan Jesse Go for 10, 12 years, 12 years. I think at this point. Yeah. Um, in, I mean, it seems to me that the probably show wouldn't really exist the way it do, did if you and Jordan weren't very forthright with like what's going on in your life. But do you ever have a moment of do you wish you had left your kids kind of out of it, or do you? If do you I had think left my net? kids, if I had left my kids out of it, I would have nothing to talk about because all I do is work and take care of my kids. <laughs> um, I think both Jordan and I on our show have carved out a portion of our lives that we talk about on the show, uh-huh. and. There have been times when we have opened up our deepest feelings banks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I the, the, like literally to the point where I can I could I could list them. You know, when my dog died um, many years ago, uh, after Ferguson, I talked about a story from my teenage years that I couldn't get out of my head. Um, a few thing, a few times like that. Mm-hmm. Generally, I think we are like stand-up comics in that the parts of our lives that we reveal on the air are the parts that make for (laughs) show content. Uh Like the premise of our show is not that you get to know our emotional lives. Uh It's like being friends or friendly acquaintances with us. So I we are really careful about never revealing anything about our families or even our own lives that is really intended for an intimate mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter is a girl at the... At the I almost said at the five and dime. <laughs> Who goes... When she's getting a phosphate at the five and dime, <laughs> she's a girl, right? Like, she's a girl everywhere in the world. It's just a fact of her life that right. is what it is. Yeah. You know? And, um, but, like, there are also things that we don't talk about. I mean, like, if you've been a longtime Jordan Jesse Go listener, you might notice that Jordan has never told the story. I mean, at least in 10 years, 11 years, has not told the story about, like, a bad date he went on. Uh-huh. It's because he doesn't wants to keep want, dating. Yeah, wants to, doesn't want to reveal that part of his life, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of that. So I think that it's a funny thing that, like, when you listen to a podcast, it feels like 
because of the authenticity inherent in the form and the mm-hmm. and the the medium, it feels like you know somebody very intimately. Mm-hmm. And we are real and authentic. We're not faking anything, right. but we're also there are broad swaths that we decide not to involve. Is that an active decision? Do you it is, or is it? Yeah, I mean, sort I think of, it's, it's an active an decision. I mean, at this point, I've been doing it long enough, deciding what is and isn't uh, something I want to talk about in public. Uh-huh. That um, it, you know, th- that it feels natural. Mm. It's rare that I have to make an active decision. That would typically be some in a situation where the stakes are. I like trying to like talking about Grace coming out. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, when we talked about Grace coming out, as I said, we thought about it and it was like, there's not really a way to not talk about it. Right. And also, it's fucking fine. It's what how people live their lives. Right. Um, so it it feels natural. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so also, wh- like my most of my deepest feelings are not very interesting. <laughs> Much less funny. You know what I mean? Like, I was really sad when my grandma died, but there wasn't anything funny And you didn't think that, that would be good comedy fodder? No. Um, before we go, is there anything you want to say about Roberto Clemente? I know he's a uh, person you like to talk about, and my husband lectured me a while about him. About him. About what a great, what a great American Roberto Clemente was? What I said was, um, I think... A podcast I listened to said anyone who doesn't like Roberto Clemente is racist. Does that mean anything to you? He's like, yes, <laughs> and let me tell you why. I don't know. I just didn't know if you wanted to share with a new audience your love for well, Roberto Clemente. I have, I have really strong, I have really strong feelings about, um, I have really strong feelings about racism and baseball uh-huh. independently, sure, together as well. I think the person that I said. If you don't like him, you're that you're probably racist. Was Ricky Henderson? <laughs> uh, Ricky Henderson is a, a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, who played for the A's when I was a kid, which uh-huh. was uh, my dad's favorite team. So we'd go to the Coliseum, we'd see him and stuff, and an amazing showing player, showy player who was famous for making what they call a snap catch, which is if he had an easy fly ball, he'd catch it by snap by flicking his glove at it rather than putting his glove up at which is sort of like non-traditional and showy Uh and he wore electric green batting gloves and he was a thrilling very exciting player and he also now and has always talked in the third person primarily (laughs) and was famous for doing a few things like um uh the first time he got a million dollar paycheck he framed it instead of catching cashing it To the point where at the end of the season, the team called him and was like, it seems like you didn't cash a million dollar check. Our books aren't balancing. And he's like, yeah, I framed it instead. I don't need the million dollars right now. But anyway, like he's like, a, you know, he's an incredible, charming, delightful man. But I think he was uh, portrayed as a simpleton um, or as lazy mm-hmm. uh, because of racism. And... So I I went I got invited on a thirty for thirty podcast for ESPN where I talked this guy's ear off about how <laughs> passionately I feel about this. I ended up getting cut from the show, but um, uh, but yeah, like I definitely baseball is the thing that I loved when I was you know nine to sixteen uh-huh. in the way that some people might love Star Wars or whatever, um, and but more. I mean, I read probably three or 400 books about baseball. I mean, I had a whole bookshelf of baseball books, all uh-huh. of which I had read. And um, and I also <laughs> care very much about social justice. So uh, they're a natural fit. <laughs> There's a very beautiful um, graphic novel of the life of Roberto Clemente. Oh, is Speaking there? of Roberto Clemente, yeah, I think it's... Maybe it's called, I think 25 was his number. I think it's called 25 maybe, but. I'm going to have to get that from my husband. He does not listen to my podcast. So Very gorgeous. It will be, it will be good. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've overstayed my welcome for sure. Um, I appreciate you letting me uh, drop in in your office and, and um, recording. Um, do you have anything you would like to promote? We've done a really good job of selling Jordan Jesse Go, I think. Yeah. I mean, Jordan Jesse Go is the dumb comedy show where we swear a lot and we're pretty gross. Uh-huh. Um, Vulgar, not gross. Vulgar. Uh. Sometimes gross. But we're not like gross, gross. 
Like my friend, no. my friend Aaron was a podcast called Throwing Shade. I, the, one of the first episodes I, I listened to was about her losing a tampon inside herself. Okay. And that was gross. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. The consequences, not the, the mere, the going into the consequences was intense. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, Jordan Nissi goes to the dumb comedy show. I feel like. Um, the natural fits are, are Bullseye, which is uh, the show on which I, uh, interview figures from the world of arts and culture, Uh um, uh, thoughtfully and in depth, uh, especially funny and fun ones. Uh Um, and then Judge John Hodgman, where John Hodgman, who folks know from the Daily Show or from the Mac versus PC commercials or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, is, is a judge and I am the bailiff and (laughs) real people with real disputes come on. And um, it is very funny, but also John is actually a very sincerely wise person. Yeah. And, uh, he gives very deep, heartfelt He's the best. decisions. Yeah, people people adore him. People like me much more on that show. <laughs> I think it's just because I'm standing next to John. We, uh, I actually saw Judge John Hadron live in Chicago, and um, my brother and I did it. It was like when you just call in the audience and you did not find my favor, which is fine. But also my brother said something and it made you laugh and spin around and he still talks about it. What was your case? <clears throat> so my well, it started, you might remember this. I started with saying my brother and I are very close and then you made fun of me for like a minute, which is fair. Mm-hmm. But we are. Um, and he had not told me that he and his girlfriend were moving in together. And I asked him why. And he said, well, you didn't ask. And I said, Please tell him that he is required to tell me important things in his life. Um, and John asked how he found, like, how I found out. And I said, from my mom. And Kevin yelled, our mom. And that really tickled you. And so he's been dining out on that for about a year now. Well, well earned. Yes. Well earned. So, yeah, Kevin, <laughs> we get it. Jesse likes you better than me. Um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for your time no and, and, and all that. And, um Guys, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Bye.